Hello and welcome to Office Hours by People Design. My name is Kevin Boodleman, uh, President of People Design, and I'm here with my partner and strategy director, Jake Kimmelsbach. Good afternoon. Uh, office Hours is a time we set aside to discuss uh, ideas that we're thinking about at People Design and issues that we confront uh, firsthand with our customers. Uh, recently, we published an article uh, on our blog called UX Principles at Work. And it's really about kind of the overlap of user experience uh, and ideas about work and built environments. And what I thought I would do here this, uh, today is, is talk through the article and some of the content a little bit. And uh, Jake and I may have a little dialogue about it and also take your questions uh, as, after I talk through it. Um, uh, you can add questions in the Q&A. You can also do some, uh, you can do it by audio if you if you like. So UX principles at work, uh, it really, at, at People Design, we've actually been exploring the idea of the relationship between user experience ideas and uh, work environments for, for um, maybe a year or so. We have been kind of looking at this as, as a topic. And I think that um, the new reality of work that many of us are experiencing as a result of the pandemic um, has started to accelerate some of these uh, changes and our, and this sort of the new reality of work is becoming harder and harder to ignore and uh, really provides kind of an opportunity or just the reality of having to deal with um, uh, kind of you know the new circumstances and maybe rethink some of the precedents that may have been in place for some time so uh, we uh, we often do work with organizations that uh, deal with the the built environment and often you know mostly physical built environment uh, but the idea of a built environment is the you know is it is a, is a place that is built uh, by people to support human activity um, and of course you know you know the idea of a, of a of a place that's built by people for people is a people people-centered design problem which is really the focus of our work here at people design and as we think about you know activities uh, increasing number of activities today, of course, are digital, right? So a lot of products and services are delivered uh, virtually. Um, and there's kind of this new landscape that we all deal with is, you know, it deals with app stores and software service work tools and distance learning and telemedicine and on-demand entertainment and gaming. All of these things are happening at a distance uh, and, and, and are sometimes asynchronous and, and it's obviously augmented by, by digital technology. And, you know, as I mentioned, the, I think the global pandemic is just doing nothing but accelerate this trend. Uh, obviously, many of us are working from home and uh, are, you know, it's, it's sort of putting a lot of pressure on you know, what kinds of interactions should happen face to face and what, which ones can be uh, supported by technology. Uh, you can argue that you know uh, uh, digital environments are also built environments, and, and there's there's a lot that can be uh, learned about as as we start to sort of in a sense build digital places and the idea of placemaking in the digital environment. Um, uh, there's a lot of opportunities we believe for cross pollination between concepts from, you know, let's say interior architecture, interior design, space planning, and the physical world. Uh, with the digital world where there are maturing concepts uh, that are coming into play in terms of UX design or user user experience design um, that can be leveraged uh, at, you know between these these two worlds the, as the the physical world and the digital world become increasingly uh, blended there's no there's no question that there's lots of opportunities for product companies uh, whether they are digital product companies or physical product companies to start to kind of uh, blur this barrier and uh, I think that we, you know, while we are all walking around with supercomputers in our pockets, uh, meaning a smartphone, these devices are going to become more and more part of our everyday life, whether it's through wearables or technology that is in, embedded in uh, physical products. Uh, and as the, I, the promise of IoT becomes more and more of a reality. So if we think about specifically about work and work environments, um, you know, the discussion about work uh, as it pertains to uh, motives, you know, why people are motivated to work and the purpose for working and even ideas around productivity is a very robust discussion uh, outside of the physical context. Certainly the idea of sort of like exploring the psychology of work 
and how work gets done and, and what are the dynamics of, of being uh, productive and, and, and uh, effective in, in one's working life um, ha has, had, has been a subject of many, many books and articles and things in recent years. And as the, the line between the physical and digital gets more blurred, um, it certainly has become to the fore in terms of people's interest. Um, the software company Slack um, uh, produces a, a tool, of course, that is starting to, had just in recent years, certainly started to shape people's notion of office communications and started to in some ways supplant email and other kinds of uh, tools that have become kind of mainstays in the digital work environment. And the uh, uh, just this past year issued a, what it called the state of work report. And among the things that it concluded was that modern work is primarily about people. And of course, you know, to us that comes as no surprise, but it's definitely sort of echoes our sort of emphasis on the focus of work. And while sort of Slack is a technology tool, it's very much about the, the needs for people to be aligned with their organization's strategic vision, which is a point of view that we obviously advocate as well. But it's interesting to think about, so as we think about people, how do we understand kind of how they, how people think and how they think about work? Um, and as we start to think about trying to cross-pollinate some of these ideas, um, in the article, what we explored a bit is, is ideas that come directly from the, the UX world. And of course, and when I say they come from the UX world, it's being they're used by the UX world, but they actually, uh, in many ways, come from a lot of other places. And um, in recent years, there have, as that, the, the space for user experience design and interaction design have become more and more mature, there are a lot of uh, sort of laws or tenets that have become uh, very popular. And uh, there are a lot of people who have written articles and increasingly books about uh, better understanding the kind of the ways in which we think about UX and the ways we think about interaction design in such a way that uh, can inform, uh, usually in that context, software products, digital kinds of experiences. But of course, the, the, as these things become more and more blurred, um, they're really can be leveraged in other ways. Um, in the article, we, we played off a list of UX principles that was published by uh, a fellow named John Yablonski, uh, who had uh, very nicely kind of packaged up some of these ideas. He is not the author of these things, but he did a, a very good compilation of them. And, uh, you know, so the rest, th this article actually kind of walks through um, some 20 of these, what he calls the uh, UX principles or laws of UX. Um, and as we are thinking about it, we think about it's kind of a sort of, sort of what is the UX of work? If we sort of expand on this, uh, what does that actually mean? So um, I'll just kind of walk through a few of them here, maybe five, um, uh, but there are some 20 in the article. Um, so one of them has to do with this, this idea of the aesthetic usability effect, which is kind of this, this notion that um, things that are aesthetically pleasing uh, can seem more usable. Now, if you're, a, if you're a designer who has been trained in kind of a traditional sense, um, you almost take, take that for granted. You almost think that is kind of is a rather obvious conclusion. Um, and of course, you know, the reality is that usability and aesthetics are not the same thing. Uh, very, and there's been a lot of uh, work in the last several decades on usability, um, especially in the digital space. And, and we know this. And yet, it's also true that you know, in some in some circles, uh, some level of uh, perception is reality, right? So the idea that you know aesthetics and, and strong aesthetics and, and and sort of you know things that are pleasing can feel more usable um, is something that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, and so I think there are organizations who certainly capitalize on this, and they and they really um, uh, they try to take full advantage of it when they get it right. Um, so and, and there are companies that you know. So Apple is a great example where. Um, many people would argue, many people, you know, applaud their uh, aesthetic sensibilities, and as do I, and, um, and many people enjoy their products. And of course, some usability experts push back on, you know, the, the, the beauty in some ways may actually fight the usability, which is a whole other question, but it's sort of a question of, again, whether people, you know, sort of feel that way. So I think it's something that is something that should be considered as we think about the, what are the importance of aesthetics and its impact on the perceived usability. Um, and because that, that, that goes a long way, although it's not the same thing as usability. Another idea that was introduced to, uh, it, that we and discussed in the article is this idea of Hicks Law, which is uh, really from uh, two American uh, psychologists and work that they had done in the 50s um, that has to do with, that, that, that states, uh, you know, the time 
uh, it takes to make a decision increases with the number of choices, um, which is to say more choices uh, actually makes things more complicated for the user. Um, there's this idea of the, the paradox of choice that comes with uh, offering more choices. And, and, and in fact, uh, in Jake and I in our work with clients, we very often talk about the, the, the space that we're in today. We describe it sometimes as, as the era of choice. Um, and what that, what that implies is that there are many organizations that have, um, are, are dealing with customers that have um, more and more choices available to them. And um, that's usually through globalization, digital innovation, um, that there, and, and has created kind of more of a crowded marketplace, um, you know, to, 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 the, to the point where, you know, an organization like Amazon is in almost any, everyone's business today, right? And so, which becomes kind of a, you know, a strange kind of competitor if you're, if you're uh, a, a company that has, has done business in a more traditional way. So how do you deal with kind of this era of choice? Well, it's very, very common for organizations to ask their customers what they want. And of course, if you ask customers, almost always, they tend to, you know, want more choice. People say they want more choices. But the paradox of choice is that the, the more, uh, the more choices that are given to a customer or a user, they usually actually start to freeze up and it takes them longer. So this Hicks law is the idea that um, presenting more choices actually makes it harder for people to make a choice. So this is, this is, a, this is an idea that we, we filter into our value proposition work and either on a company level, on a product or service level, or even on a program level. But the basic idea is that you know, being able to make choices on behalf of customers becomes a strategic decision on a part of the organization that sometimes people are either unwilling or unable to make. Uh, but it's, it's critical to recognize that more choices does not necessarily lead to something that's, that's better or more usable uh, fr from, from a customer standpoint. So it's interesting to think about how that overlays in terms of the idea of work and the idea of um, uh, built environments. Um, the third idea I'll just highlight here is the idea of Jacob's Law, which is from Jacob Nielsen, the famous uh, uh, usability author and guru from NNG, uh, his company. And uh, the idea here is that um, there's a lot that can be learned from familiar patterns. So recognizing what kind of familiar patterns are in the marketplace um, has a big impact on usability. So, which is to say, that, so he, he often talks about in, in the terms of sort of website design. He was a sort of an early pioneer in uh, pushing on usability for websites. But the idea that, you know, users spend most of their time on other websites other than your website. So they actually learn and become very familiar with patterns from those other websites. And so when you're working on your website, um, it means that they, they prefer your website to work pretty much the same way that other websites do because there's that sort of baked in pattern. Um, that's a tough. That's a tough pill to swallow if you're try if you're a designer or a brand or an organization trying to build an experience that is that is deliberately different. And you could overlay that into the physical environment too, whether it's products or services. If you think about, you know, the you know, the desire for newness can actually fight the uh, the fight usability. So does your you know, does your desire for novelty inhibit your productivity at work? Um, the, does the idea for a new aspect to your product um, actually make it harder to use, and hard, which is which can lead to you know uh, not, not as much adoption, not as many sales, ultimately that sort of thing. So, recognizing this, you know, the broader issue here from our standpoint might have to do with kind of context. What is the context in which a, a customer is making a decision, and how to, or or your your staff from a work environment standpoint. And how, how does that familiar pattern and disrupting the familiar pattern um, inhibit their ability to be uh, effective or productive in their, in their work environment? Uh, a fourth uh, one I'll note here is this idea of Miller's Law, which is uh, by a fellow by the name of George Miller, also a, a psychologist from the 50s. Um, which is the basic idea of kind of short-term memory. And if you've taken some kind of basic one-on-one -on -one psychology classes, you've probably heard the idea that the average person can only keep um, seven plus or minus two items in their working memory. This is something that I think we've, you know, culturally started to um, accept and understand and people talk about it colloquially. And yet 
um, I don't know as if we all always behave this way. So we think about in terms of work, our workspace. I mean, how many items on, are on your to-do list? You know, pl seven plus or minus two, I mean, on your project list or how many people are on your work team? Um, how many meetings do you have today? How many emails are in your inbox that are actually actionable? Um, these are problems that many software companies are actually starting to take on. There's a lot of task management softwares that are trying to, software that are going after the, the work productivity space and how to allow people to, uh, as, as many of them claim, get out of the, your inbox in order to be more effective. Uh, but you could also make the argument in terms of, you know, the, the actual physical environment in terms of like how many choices are presented um, and how many things you can kind of keep in your mind in terms of like how is the space organized and how do you, and how do you think about it? Um, and so it relates to things like software in terms of buttons, but also, you know, all, even an offering for a company. How many things does a company do? Um, how, many, how many choices are you giving them in terms of ways you're engaging with them or selling? And is this, is this too many? And it's so much of it has to do with kind of, you know, the human capacity for processing information. And I just uh, happened to hear this morning, I was listening to uh, Elon Musk being interviewed about his Neuralink. So unless we, until we all kind of have a chip in our brains and increase our capacity for processing information, um, our limitation to the humans actually in some ways might be seven plus or minus two. And the fifth uh, thing I'll just highlight here uh, today from the article has to do with uh, this idea of Tesla's law, which is from a guy named Larry Tesler, uh, which was from Xerox Park in the, in the 80s. And the, the basic concept is that for any system, there's a certain amount of complexity which cannot be reduced. And um, if you are in the space of uh, user experience and customer experience and interaction, as we are, at people design, we think a lot about systems and system design and inputs and outputs and that sort of thing. And the the idea that you know that there's there's a huge value in starting to reduce complexity uh, in systems. And very often we're you know that that's kind of an object an overt objective um, in terms of trying to reduce complexity. But Tesla's law implies that there's there's a limit uh, where a system can only be reduced so much. There's a certain amount of inherent complexity of the system that needs to be there for it to function properly. And so it's an interesting idea, especially if you overlay um, another aspect of, of our work, which has to do with uh, the desire to create more simple experiences for customers or users or employees. Um, an, an idea that we have um, written about and talk a lot about with our clients is the idea of absorbing complexity. So uh, what we mean by that is an organization or a piece of software or an environment has to absorb complexity in order to keep it away from a, from a user. So in order to create a simple experience, you have to absorb a lot of complexity, you have to take on complexity. And this is hard. A lot of organizations don't want to take on any more complexity. We've definitely come out of an age where um, you know, the idea of organizations focusing on their core competency and outsourcing every other aspect of their business um, makes them very averse to absorbing complexity. And yet, if you think about some of the best customer experiences people have today, it's because those organizations have absorbed an enormous amount of complexity. Amazon is, a, is probably the best example of this. If you think about how simple, you know, Amazon tries very, very hard to make it very, very simple for you to order something online uh, through their apps and so on one touch kind of almost you know one click kind of operations in order to uh, quickly check out and have something delivered on your doorstep you think about the enormous amount of complexity in terms of the logistics ordering technology staffing um, notifications everything that they have built in and the under the hood so to speak in order to achieve that very very simple goal so if we think about sort of the idea that there's only there's only there's a limit to how much complexity can be reduced and the idea of absorbing complexity it has interesting implications in terms of you know our work in terms of our uh, how we work with each other what does it mean in terms of the physical environment what does it mean you know you know, it sort of begs the question about you know what is really needed and what's wasteful um, what kind of uh, what kind of complexity needs to be hidden if you will from the user or the customer uh, has real implications on uh, products and services and and uh, built environments of, of all kinds. So it, it kind of it, it wrap this up a little bit. Um, you know, these there are the concepts that we list here in this in this article and uh, this laws of UX idea may seem um, esoteric to some. Uh, they might they might seem groundbreaking, 
they might seem really obvious. If you're, if you're a UX designer, some of these ideas have been kicked around for some time. Um, but I think that they have non-obvious implications if we start to overlay them into the, the physical space and built environments. Um, that, you know, as we start to explore this sort of new horizon, I would say between this digital and physical blend, um, I think it has some really interesting implications on uh, user experience in the context of a built environment. Um, we at People Design have been starting, to, as I mentioned at the top, have been starting to explore these ideas and kind of we've uh, broadly started to put it under this, this uh, uh, idea of the UX of work. Um, there's a lot of work, to, a lot of thinking that can be done here and we are not the originators of all these things, but it's a topic that we think is very um, important today as we start to explore. So we've been developing kind of a series of um, uh, thought pieces like this and started to explore all this as it relates to uh, physical uh, built environments uh, as well as digital uh, built environments and uh, how it relates to work as well as other topics like other kinds of physical and I'm sorry built environments that um, that help support education health and other kinds of topics uh, as we explore kind of the UX of work. Okay so I'll, let me pause there for a moment and as I, as I mentioned, uh, Jake and I may just kind of chat about this a little bit between ourselves, but those of you who have signed in, uh, you're welcome to ask questions and I'm happy to kind of, we can try to answer them and have a little discussion here. Great, thanks, Kevin. Yeah, um, uh, it's interesting to, to listen and to read the article and just kind of think about where this goes uh, in the future. Uh, one question that I have is that, you know, we've, we've listed, uh, you listed a lot of different principles um, in this article. And I'm curious, you know, as we move towards this, uh, you know, more blended reality, perhaps between physical and digital spaces, do you see some of these uh, principles either um, going away, um, new principles uh, coming out of it, uh, or is it more about an evolution of the current principles that we're looking at more than it will be, um, you know, a boom of new principles. Yeah, I mean, it's good. It's a good question. I mean, I, I think that the, I think that there's there's nothing magic about this particular list. I mean, as mm -hmm. I mentioned, this, this this list of twenty principles was compiled by uh, someone who's who's done some homework and started to research this. And and this is not the only. If you look online, there are many medium articles and books and things that are starting to kind of. You know, isolate the sort of the the sort of the specific a specific point of view about these things, and in some respects, I think that the the field of user experience is becoming more mature, and so the the, the maturation of the field has been all about, in some ways, trying to nail down principles like these methods, you know, this sort of thing, and being able to document them. I think that though, in in reality, so like the extent to which it's becoming more mature, it becomes sort of more defined. Um, having said that, I think that this is a, is a very dynamic space in that I think we're learning a lot more uh, about well, what um, what we're really dealing with in terms of you know designing for built environments and designing for uh, both physical and digital spaces. I suspect that, as I mentioned, some of these ideas have been, um, they've become very popularized in the digital uh, design space, but um, I think that there's, so there could be cross-pollination from digital into the physical, but I also think that there's a lot of physical space design ideas that could probably find their way into, into the digital space. And if we look at these, as I mentioned, many of these actually, what's interesting is are, they're not new, right? So several of these concepts are really, have their roots in psychology research in universities from some 70 years ago. So I think it may also be digging more deeply into kind of the, into the sort of behavioral science and the science of choice um, and, and, and sort of cognitive bias and all of these kind of behavioral uh, ideas because, and, and in some respects, you know, they might've been sort of pure research or interesting, uh, you know, let's say research papers in the psychology world, but how do they start to actually apply? Um, these things are becoming more and more evident um, as we think about, you know, these kind of these, these some of these patterns. And in fact, in the, in the UX design community, there's even an identification of what they call dark patterns, which is to say the kind of crazy tricks that um, social media platforms are playing on us every day to keep us engaged. So it becomes a very, you know, it starts to cross into ethics and all kinds of other issues, um, but they're, they're very real. Um, and, it, so, and I think it's quite, um, 
to, to answer your sort of more immediate question, I think it's very robust and will continue. I think it will be continue to be defined, but it's going to continue to move. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and thinking about kind of this physical digital uh, blur and you know these hybrid experiences, how do you feel COVID has impacted our progress uh, in this direction? Yeah, I think it's you know for. In, from my way of thinking, and as you know, we have been kind of looking at this UX of work concept for, for probably a year or so. Um, I think that the, uh, I, I, I think that as we had stated in kind of another article, in fact, the, the pandemic has accelerated in many places changes that may have been underway. So I think that, you know, there's, there's at least two impacts for, I think that how COVID has, has affected our, our lives. On one hand, it's probably pointed to brand new areas of exploration. So we've, we've talked earlier on another uh, audio podcast like this about um, how, you know, we may start looking at infection control the way we started looking at uh, dealing with terrorism after 9-11. So right. some of these are like permanent changes that are new factors. But then there are other factors, I think, other things that are patterns that we had been already been talking about um, that are um, that were already kind of underway. And I think that the idea of, so for example, distance learning, this was already a pattern that was emerging. I mean, it's certainly in the, in the higher ed space, uh, for example, I mean, it had been coming more and more of reality as uh, organizations like the University of Phoenix or other uh, institutions have either done fully online courses or starting to do hybrid versions. There's no question that I think the pandemic has now accelerated this you know many many times and not only in sort of uh uh in, in sort of the higher ed space but just secondary education even primary education uh, many people who have their kids at home so it's the kind of thing where so what what that's do, doing is suddenly thrusting um a whole kind of a, a new dimension into an environment and i think this, so it's true in higher ed but i think it's true in terms of every day's everybody's sort of working lives is suddenly everybody's uh, working from home. And, and I think what's likely to happen is that, especially the longer this, this pandemic goes on, the more likely that these these uh, new patterns will take root. Um, yeah. So, you know, we won't go back to 100% normal in terms of uh, uh, higher ed. I mean, I think, you know, hybrid learning was already kind of a nascent pattern and it's just, just right in, in everybody's laps now. And the same is true from work, work from home. I mean, work from home is an idea that's been around for decades. And yet, I think it will become more and more. It's 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 actually a reality for sure today, and we'll probably be here to stay. And so, I think that these, when there, it's almost like when we shuffle the deck with new dynamics, new cards, or things have changed now that has been had already been disrupted through some level of technology. But now, with the, with COVID on top of that, it's going to accelerate the the demand for rethinking what are the principles for you know, working. And there's no question that suddenly, if everybody's suddenly working from home and not from an office, it's automatically bringing up questions about what are the principles by which we're working? Are you supposed to show up on time? Or how are you supposed to be dressed? What are the protocols? What's lost if you're not together? Why is it lost? Can we not do it some other way? I mean, these are you know, obviously active conversations about work. And I think sort of like the question of like, what's the user experience? What's the, what, what is the sort of the, the the man-made environment whether it's physical or digital so to support this um it, it brings up lots of questions about what are the design criteria for creating those built environments which i think goes to these principles yeah it's yeah, and it's a good point I, and uh again for those who are listening we've got our eyes on the chat channel and the q a so if you have any thoughts feel free to throw them in there and we'll make sure we get to them um you know it's interesting to think about uh what will stay uh as we kind of move towards the vaccine and kind of move on to uh, move past this, fingers crossed, and, and what will go. And, um, you know, listening to you speak, it, it makes me think about uh, the restaurant. It makes me think about a couple of things. One is um, the restaurant industry. And so, I, you know, like with, with three kids, we don't go out to eat much. Um, but then, you know, more places are doing phone ordering and takeout in a way that's super convenient. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, like we can do this. And I wonder if, you know, that's opening up a new sales channel for those restaurants. Um, and one that I, you know, is forcing people to experience restaurants in a new way, or at least giving them an opportunity to experience restaurants in a new way. So it's this kind of interesting thing where um, it's, it's potentially opening up 
um, new ways of doing business for organizations. And it's forcing both the organization and the customer to, uh, to adapt to new experiences and to test things out, whether they work or fail, and start to find uh, the proper balance and to experiment with things um, at a faster rate than they have before. I was, um, I was talking to some uh, high school teachers uh, last night and you know, they were just talking about the difference between teaching classes this year versus last year. And they're even thinking ahead about, well, what is the impact of it the following year? And as we pick up students, you know, who, uh, who you know, we, we called it uh, last spring, uh, you know, there's a different learning style this year. Um, and there's some things that they, that they implemented that they love. Some things they don't like so much, but it's interesting to think about you know, as you mentioned, the space as a user experience versus the digital and how we have to uh, more deeply incorporate uh, or intertwine these uh, tools uh, in a way that's going to be helpful for the user. Um, and, and I guess on that note, another thought that, that I had was, you know, there's, um, there's these tools that we use right now. I mean, like just thinking about my current work setup, you know, it's a laptop, it's a screen, it's a mouse, uh, paper and pad, a desk, a chair, all these different things. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what might start to, and you kind of mentioned earlier this idea of, you know, these supercomputers that we have in our pockets, hmm. these health smartphones. And it makes me wonder about, as we look at these tools, whether it's a, a watch or your headphones, your laptop, your desktop, your phone, which tools are gonna to start to fall into the background and which will come to the foreground as we start to blur these experiences? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think that um, there's, a lot, there's a lot to be said about kind of the, um, the interface. Where does the interface take place? I think that there's, you know, as I think about kind of the, the idea of complexity, where does the complexity reside? How does how is some of that complexity absorbed into some things, versus which things that are deliberately set as user controls? Um, you know, as, as you know, smartphones have started to connect. With, you know, I think about, if I think about like future patterns, um, phones connecting to cars mm -hmm. and cars, car navigation systems and entertainment systems. Um, and you know, I think of the new Apple phone is going to start unlocking cars. So like, you know, so it's interesting to think about how some of these devices are going to start in some ways replacing or become the interface um, or, or at least in terms of the phone connecting to the car, you're actually interacting with the car, but the brains, so to speak, the complexity is enveloped in the phone. So right. it's like, taking the brains out of the car and put it in the phone and it, because it is kind of this very compact supercomputer. I think that um, it's interesting to think about what that means in terms of the, uh, the office, you know, it's like, where are, where are there pieces of, of electronics and, you know, how does that possibly shift around in terms of like, what, what does the, what does the user do? And, you know, there's no question that, you know, the evolution of, um, Wi-Fi, you know, wireless networking, of course, has started to really change, you know, office mobility. Um, but we're still we're still tethered by power unless there's, you know, continued, you know, improvements in battery life and so on. Um, but even thinking about things like printers or light lights, mm -hmm. um, HVAC systems, um, security systems. Um, I mean, it could be that, you know, there's technology that will emerge that relates to uh, infection control, uh, I'm guessing. I mean, there's there's even discussion about like the relationship of ultraviolet, you know, things uh, or, or light that can actually try to help to um, kill viruses and so on or keep surfaces clean. So there's, there's um, I mean, and, and, and I'm kind of getting out, I don't know that much about that technology. You're saying there's, there's a lot of discussion. And so, but the more that there are sort of technology-based solutions, I think it begs the question about where does that technology reside Mm -hmm. And where is the user interface for it? So, you know, which, you know, there's a lot, been a lot of discussions about the smart home, you know, uh, Internet of Things kind of idea where, you know, your toaster is talking to your refrigerator, talking to your phone or whatever. 
um, that's an interesting hypothesis. You know, the question is like, what is the what is the desired use case? Where does it where does you know? So I, I would think about it in terms of like where where is the complexity being absorbed and hidden from the user versus what the user is actually trying to you know needs to experience. So it's a complicated issue. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I I think the idea of a of a toaster speaking to your refrigerator, it's like I think that opens the doors up for a lot of new dad jokes in terms of. Uh, what, what, what did the toaster say to the refrigerator? Yes, There's exactly. got to be something there that might my, my children will, will roll their eyes in. But um, it, it also brings up this idea of, I, I like what you're saying in terms of interfaces and, and where is the interface because it, it pushes into uh, material design and what can we do with the materials that we have available to us? Uh, where are they going? You know, sensors and things like that. And how are they embedded into the actual materials rather than you know, I think about, I think a lot about the, the, I think the desktop and computers are kind of a funny, uh, funny metaphor where um, we have computers that sit on our desks and we call our screens the desktop, right, right. kind of near the idea of a desk. Um, and, and then what does that mean for how we organize our work? And, uh, and as we kind of move forward, is the computer an extra layer of uh, technology or an extra layer of interface that we really don't need. I mean, is it just really about the desk itself and making the desk the interface rather than having to put something on top of it um, and then just use it as a holding place, which I think is kind of an interesting concept. And it, um, it in some ways, it forces this idea when you're kind of talking about this, the car and kind of taking the technology out of the car and putting it into your, your phone, it's what it does in a sense is it allows each touch point, each customer touch point to just be good at what it's meant to be good at mm -hmm. and not putting a bunch of pressure on it to do something that it's not good at. Mm -hmm. I think early on, uh, it reminds me of um, early on as cars started to try to figure out how to adapt more technology. At first they were rolling out their own, all, they, they were all rolling out their own systems and then realized that they can't keep up with Google and Apple and Microsoft. And so, <laughs> And, and they just kind of outsource that, that which, which is great. And that's kind of how it should be. Um, and, and it kind of looks at, you know, okay, so the car is good at certain things, but it's not good at other things. And so let that be that. So it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, where does the interface live? How might this impact the materials that we choose to use or uh, apply when we're doing product design? And what do we really want this to be good at? And what is the ecosystem that it's connected to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you think about the, you know, the car in some ways, you know, you know, there's an aspect by relegating kind of the, the brains of the entertainment system and let's say the map navigation system to the phone, the car has become a, a big chunk of the car, at least in not, not so much the engine and kind of its primary function that way, but these other pieces um, have really just become a user interface yeah. for a phone. Like you're interacting for your, with your phone yeah. Through, through the controls of the car, which right. is interesting. So like, if you think about like, what is, you know, what if a desk were that way? Or what if your office lighting, you know, at some point, all of the personal preferences, just like your personal music preferences or your address book and your, in your navigation on your phone, they could very easily be preferences in terms of like how warm or cold you want your room to be or what the level of light and how warm to cool the light is and whether that adjusts to the time of day and all of those kinds of things, which, you know, you could very easily see being, you know, transmitted as you walk into a room, either wirelessly or if you plugged it in the way you do with um, cars and, and phones and cars today, can you not plug the phone into the office and the office would be configured and have, you know, other kinds of settings um, that start to exist. So it's, it's just interesting to think about where this all goes yeah. um, and how we, and you know, and how, do, how does the user actually interact with it? You know, because the question of like, how do they, how do they think about it? Um, and what are the opportunities there? What about, so, so it's interesting. Uh, we've talked about blur, the blur between physical and digital spaces. And I, I totally agree with that. At, at some point though, we, we, we got to we switch, right? So we're switching between a physical space and a, and a digital space. And I think about the idea of blur versus just switching. Mm -hmm. And my hunch is that we'll have to switch back and forth more frequently and be able to make that adjustment on the fly when needed. Mm -hmm. And I guess this, this question kind of goes more towards 
skill sets and team dynamics uh, than those technologies. But if, if we imagine that um, we may have to switch between physical and digital worlds a little bit more quickly or a little bit more frequently uh, than we have in the past, does this require either new skill sets or are there skill sets that we would emphasize over others? Um, or how does this change, start to change team dynamics? Yeah. So that's kind if of a multi-tiered question there, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good one. And I, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know the answer necessarily. I do think that, you know, I think about our, I think about our own work experience, right, Jake? I mean, yeah. I think about how we are, he like probably many in our space, we're heavy whiteboard users, right? And so, you know, as, as, a, as an analog collaborative prototyping device, which is, sounds overly complicated, but that's essentially what it is or the way we use it anyway, right? Where there's somebody with a marker and it's, you know, it's, it's literally this erasable ink on a surface that is, that can be wiped clean. And that's, you know, that in a room setting is like the way you, you're sort of facilitating a conversation with, with pictures and, you know, which is kind of like lo-fi prototypes, if you will. Um, obviously through this pandemic, that's been wholly replaced by, in our case, Miro and Google Docs and lots of other things. Um, the question I've been asking myself, you and I have talked about this, right? So when we inevitably return to being in the same space in a more regular basis, will we get rid of the old tool in place of the, the new one? Mm. Um, or will, we, uh, will our patterns of work change significantly enough that we'll do a little bit of each? And we've hypothesized we might do a little bit of each. Um, which does beg the question to your point about switching. You know, switching is always kind of a, a challenge from a usability standpoint because there's nearly always switching costs. You know, the idea that, um, you know, there's some time or information or rhythm and productivity loss in switching. Um, so I, I suspect what it comes down to is that there's, you know, the more optimal situation is going to be seamless switching um and what does that actually mean how seamless can the switching right. actually be which i don't know it's an interesting question about like oh, is seamless switching an artifact of the product um is it an artifact of the person I mean, to your point about team and team dynamics um i think that people who are more familiar and comfortable with technology um also switch more fluidly often um so it depends on how much of a you know, but you know, it's also true that the older I get, the more you know, you get a little set in your ways as to how you do things, and what is that? What does that switching cost actually mean? So, I mean, it's an interesting question about, and I, I even think that the, the line between physical and digital gets increasingly blurry anyway. I think in terms of the more technology that's embedded in things, the more invisible it is to the user, and um, you know, as as again as a as a parent, I look at you know, there's increasing amounts of technology embedded into lots of, you know, appliances around the home and around your office. Um, to, to my kids, it's invisible because it's not technology to them, it's just the way it is. Right. Yeah, what, what do you see is, so as we kind of move towards these new different experiences, is there uh, places or moments where you think we'll start to experience, uh, you know, growing pains, so to speak? Well, I, yes, <laughs> I think that, I think that, um, I think that there were, we're in, I mean, part of the, there's an argument to be made that we are in a state of um, accelerated change. And um, I think even the, you know, the, the class that I teach uh, about information strategy is really, that's kind of the, one of the fundamental ideas of it that, um, you know, we're, I, you know, it's, it's the classic kind of, you know, does a fish know it's in water or does the frog know that the water's being boiled or whatever. Right. I think that it's hard in, in, in any kind of particular snapshot to sort of like say, okay, well, like, wow, what's happening right now? Is it difficult? Um, unless you had some kind of working life or adult experience, I think before the internet age, it's hard to imagine the world without it. And I think that, um, and, but by, and so in many ways, for those of us who have kind of lived through that, um, it feels very new and spectacular and still kind of miraculous. Um, as I mentioned, a younger person will just take it as a matter of course. I think that um, though the challenge with taking it as a matter of course is that um, even now things are changing very dramatically. I mean, as you know, we've, we've often talked about how if you're, 
if we're familiar with Moore's law, which is this idea about computer computer technology, I think is the found, one of the founders of Intel had you know hypothesized this is back in like the seventies that computer technology will become uh, twice as fast at half the cost every eighteen months or something, which has more or less been true ever since he said that. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it, you know we've we've hypothesized that even if Moore's law were to cease being true like right now, it would still take us decades probably to sort out the um, societal impact and the and the and the product opportunities that are lying in front of us right now. Right. Um, as it stands, it keeps changing so rapidly we can barely keep up. So there's there are absolutely you know growing pains. I think that you know if we think about social platforms themselves as being kind of a um, a huge psychology experiment we're uh, playing on ourselves. Um, we don't know what the impact is. So I think that, um, uh, yeah, I think that there, the question is whether, how does the growing pain, I suppose, reveal itself? Um, I think that there will be probably unexpected benefits and unexpected um, deficits. Um, so, you know, people are, as I mentioned, with social platforms, people are wondering about, you know, the connectivity is great, but is it leading to depression and other issues? Um, but, it, you know, kind of harkening back to one of your earlier points, I think that, you know, it's interesting how at least two of our clients have shared how the lack of being able to travel has forced them to conduct business using technology um, and or realizing that they can conduct business without traveling altogether and actually becoming more profitable because of it. And, you know, once that hits the CFO's desk, um, that's, that's not going to switch back. So yeah. it's just, the, which I think, and so the growing pain there might be, in one case, it was a real estate company. And yeah, suddenly they're going to be realtors that are going to lose their jobs if you can do it through VR. Um, yeah. In the case, it's going to be a question of like, okay, if, if sales doesn't require traveling to a customer's location as much, yeah, what does that mean for the role of the salesperson? So I, I think there's um there are there are a lot of things that you know where I think we're going to experience. I guess the question of like how do we feel that pain? Um, how does it express itself? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, so the last uh, knowing that we're kind of coming up to the top of the hour, I just have kind of one more question for you, and it's I guess it's more of a thought than an actual question, but sure. um, you know, there's this interesting piece about um, I guess this. Uh, I'll call it a design paradigm. I don't know if that's fair to say it, but this idea of together and apart. And you know, you've talked a little bit about how, uh, from a work perspective, what are, what are the things that we can do apart? What are the things that we can do together? And kind of making sure you're you're using your time in valuable ways. And there's also a huge psychological aspect to this. And uh, you know, I guess as I was. Um, I, I like I'm a, I'm a Disney Plus uh, guy, and I just got the notification the other day about um, boy I can't remember what they they call it, but it was this idea of being able to watch shows together, like stream shows together from different devices from different places, and be able to kind of you know comment on things, share reactions, uh, having your stream uh, in sync and be able to pause uh, for everyone kind of a thing and. It, it made me uh, think about this idea of together and apart. So how do we, how do we create this social feeling of being together, uh, even though we're apart? Um, and how does that start to shape the way we think about time together versus time alone? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess more of a rambling thought than a question, but I'd be no, curious what you're, you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of interesting thoughts about that. I mean, I think there's no question that in the discussion we've had about our own work and our work with our clients and so on is been around um, what is essential to be together. You know, yeah. can we do this apart? Do we want to do it apart? What does that actually mean? I think that, you know, I just met someone for coffee this morning and they were talking about how I was asking how things are going. And of course we're sitting outside and so on because they're working from home, we're working from home. And they're sharing about the fact that, you know, um, they can achieve what they need to home, at home but they do feel the what they're lacking by not being together, which is to say in the same physical space, is kind of the casual, you know, interaction that may have accelerated their creative process and right. ability to be more innovative. Whereas when everybody's not that they're not talking to each other, but the the risk of being alone, 
um, is right. sort of in your silo. By the same token, though, I think that there's no question that also technology, again, the digital experiences are starting to create all kinds of opportunities for um, increased, you know, kind of connection. I mean, you think about even, you know, what it, the role of Twitter today during like the presidential debate earlier this week, you know, these platforms that start to serve as almost like this meta layer of experience. And I think I have to believe that whether it's, uh, you mentioned Disney Plus and the, um, uh, I forget there's a Netflix plugin where my daughter will, you know, they, they do the Netflix, you know, watching at the same time. You can imagine that, I mean, that's, it could very well be where sports are going, right? right. Or, you know, movies, you know, could you, could you connect virtually with four of your friends and go watch a movie together virtually? And maybe that's what Disney, I wrote it down, I'm not familiar with your example, but I would be surprised if Disney's not exploring this kind of avenue because, you know, ultimately it's why we do these things sometimes. So, you know, sometimes the, you and I have talked about the psychological idea of a, of a boundary object as it relates to prototyping and creative design. But, you know, obviously going to dinner and seeing a movie or something is obviously a boundary object for a social relationship very right. often. And um, so in other words, it, you know, so having a, being able to connect with your friends at a, at a, for a football game or something is something that is, that is augmented by technology certainly seems like it's something on our, on our horizon if it's not happening already, you know, via, via Twitter or other platforms. So, you know, you, you know I, I can imagine, I mean, what are the similar experiences as, as it pertains? So those are entertainment ideas, but as it relates to work, um, I mean, there's certainly, I mean, that the, the, my role these days with IXDA, we're doing a lot of discussion about, you know, obviously virtual conferences. This is the other part. Again, what are the pros and cons? You can yeah. go watch a talk together, but that's not the same thing as being able to, you know, incidentally run into somebody at the elevator. So, you know, there, there's a lot of questions that I, I think it's, you know, this, again, this forced reshuffling of the deck is forcing us to re-examine these principles. Absolutely. Well, I think, uh, you know, that kind of hits our time. Um, and uh, for those who are listening, if you guys have any other thoughts or questions, always feel free to shoot us a note. Uh, our emails are Kevin at People Design and Jake at People Design. Um, if you want to uh, connect uh, or listen to uh, this webinar or any other webinars that we've done in the past, you can find uh, them on our website, but also our Anchor page, which is anchor.fm uh, slash People Design. And uh, lastly, uh, if you're into this kind of topics, these kinds of topics, uh, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter which is, uh, again, you can find that on our website, but again, it's uh, peopledesign.com uh, slash subscribe. So thank you everyone for listening and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much.